the lie that poetry tells is constant as the truth itself. Without the lies and the false beliefs, where would we be? Where would we be? Welcome to the State of the Theory podcast. I'm Hannah. I'm an Indian. And we are your theory doctors. Hello. Welcome back. Um, we are going to talk about the happy topic of violence and its relationship to the state today. It um, feels like we've had this conversation over and over again. Yes. It's like just Groundhog Day. Yes. If, if people just listened to us and did what we said, I think everything would be fine. But they continue not to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so why have we chosen to come back to this? Um, this week, um, we're talking about the shootings in Dallas um, and the, the rise of the so-called Blue Lives Matter movement in parts of the United States um, in relation to um, the ongoing activist movements loosely termed Black Lives Matter um, and the state violence in Kashmir, um, which we'll talk about more, I think, for American listeners, what's happening in India right now probably hasn't made the news um, as much. Yes. As we would like. So we'll talk a bit more about that, the context of... Um, yes, before we do, do you want to say a bit more about what happened in Dallas, just in case? Yeah, so um, in the last couple of weeks, there have been two very high-profile, um, there have been more than two, but two very high-profile um, police shootings of um, black men. Um, African-American men, of course... Um, are at much greater risk of being subject to um, what many believe and know to be unlawful acts of violence by the police um, or other um, figures in authority, security guards, um, the military, etc. Um, and this has been a national conversation for a number of years now. Black Lives Matter was a originally a kind of online um, call to protest, call to organize, call to discuss and debate. Um, it was not a call to arms, um, and that's not a metaphor that we'll use because it's it's um, inaccurate. Um, and it was started by a number of African American women, a couple of African American women in the United States. Um, and it's basically become a network. It's a it's an activist network um, that organize protests. They um, write opinion pieces for major newspapers and also online outlets. They do community organizing and um, kind of fundraising work, awareness raising work, educational work. I mean, it's it's a it's coalesced around a, a group of activists who are very um, vocal and articulate. Um, and organized, but it is a network of civil rights activism um, that is quite site-specific and yes. community-specific. Yes. Um, Blue Lives Matter is a 
similarly and kind of online started as an online movement to support police officers because um it's also felt by many that police officers um have been demonized by a lot of the discourse around black lives matter that police officers are being put at greater risk um and that police officers should be appreciated and thanked of course the the obvious point here is that many police officers are people of color. Um, many, many police officers are at risk. Many communities and their police forces have, you know, far more complicated relations um, than this kind of big narrative. Um, and I, you know, I wonder really about how much the internet has helped yeah. and we'll talk about the role of the yes. internet a bit more as we, we, sh- go we should on. also make the point that uh, insofar as we can have reliable statistics that, that those statistics show that the number of police officers being killed on duty is going down yes so the the, the idea that that we need a blue lives matter movement to uh, counteract the fact that the police are under more and more threat is not borne out by figures. Yes. And there's also, um, you know, the idea of statistics anyway. Those are statistics that we collect. Statistics that the government of the United States does not collect are the number of civilians who are injured or killed by police officers during routine traffic stops, during routine community policing. Um, So there's, this is a very kind of, in the big picture and the discourse that Black Lives Matter activists have put forward, I think, in a very articulate way, is this is a challenge to how the state understands itself and how it goes about creating institutions and practices and strategies for maintaining itself um, and who the state is for and how the state works. which is why we're talking about state violence yes. this yes. week in particular. Um, the Blue Lives Matter, um, it, it's trite to call it a hashtag. Obviously, this is beyond, it goes beyond um, mm. aggregating trends on Twitter now. But um, this is in response to a very devastating set of incidences of violence at a Black Lives Matter protest in Dallas where a number of police officers were shot and killed and injured by um, sniper shooters. And one of the shooters was um, was killed by a police bomb robot. The Dallas Police Force used a bomb robot um, to detonate a bomb and effectively kill a one of the shooters. Um, that made news, and that has been at the heart of the debate. Yeah. Um, in a sense, this is very similar to our discussion about Orlando, because where the discussion goes from identity and and value of life and personhood and how it relates to issues of 
around guns and gun violence and um, gun legislation in the United States is very messy and complicated. Um, and I think we're, you know, we'll, we'll refer back to some yeah. of the, the ideas that we've been talking about. Unfortunately, with the podcast, is we, we end up sort of screaming into a void here yeah. in an echo chamber, really, yeah. of like-minded people. Yes. Um, um, the, the situation, as you describe it, in America bears sort of striking similarities um, to the use of violence by the Indian state in Kashmir, by the Indian nation-state in Kashmir. Um, very briefly, Kashmir, as I'm sure you know, is a highly contested region. Um, India believes India has its right to Kashmir. Pakistan believes Pakistan has its right to Kashmir. Um, there is a, certainly a, a, a large proportion, if not an outright majority, um, of Kashmiris who would want independence from both India and Pakistan. Um, and the Indian government believes that its national unity, the the uh, preservation and propagation of the national entity as it stands is so important that any and all violent measures in order to subjugate the the civilian population and, and you know the the gaps between civilian civilian and non civilian are, are always blurred in any insurrection movement. Um, but the 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 nation state India nation state feels able to legitimately use uh, weapons of war, uh, whether it's actual military technology or, or techniques, uh, in and on a, a, a largely civilian population. Of course, in the process, radicalizing them um, uh, further. It's it's a long term issue. It's been. It's been in the news, goes in and out of the news uh, on a regular basis. Over the last week, it has flared up uh, after the death and funeral of uh, Burhadwani, who uh, was uh, a high-profile militant. Uh, you can't see me use scare quotes, but I am. That's, the, that's the, the word that has been used to describe him. And in the funeral, there was unrest, police opened fire, uh, numbers of people in the in the many tens, at least, have been killed. Um, the Indian government dis and the Indian army specifically described it as a sort of successful mission, um, using again the 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 discourse of war. And it's a story that isn't necessarily being reported that well or that comprehensively in India and the media. It is when it is reported. It is being reported through the lens of national security and a need to combat uh, Islamic extremism in a post nine eleven world, uh, and uh, it is reported through the discourse of maintaining um, a rigid distinction between appropriate use of violence when it is used by the state and inappropriate, illegal, illegitimate use of violence when it is being used by non-state force, forces, uh, which I think is, is similar in terms of the way the Black Lives Matter stroke, Blue Lives Matter discourse is taking place. Yes. Obviously there, there are some interesting differences. Um, we've talked 
before in other kind of podcast episodes about some of the similarities between India and the United States um, that I think, you know, European countries don't share. Um, So this is another interesting connection, I think, um, between two very powerful nations um, with very, very powerful militaries. Yes. Um, You were talking about um, Weber... Yes. To throw the theory in. Yeah. Um, so German sociologist Max Weber, he, he described uh, the state or defined the state as the the human organization that in the last resort maintains the monopoly over physical force. So the state is the only, only organization that is legitimately allowed to use violence. Um, and I think that definition works really well in both of these contexts where the onus of non-violent resistance and we can, we'll talk much more about non-violence and the, the apparent importance of non-violence in a second but the onus of non-violent resistance or non-violent uh, methods of activism is always on the non-state body so you know the Black Lives Matter protest has to be non-violent Kashmiri uh, protest and anger at the Indian Indian government's actions must be non-violent. And it seems to me that there is an unequal, uh, unequal force in terms of how violence is talked about as well as used. It seems too there's, in some ways there's just a spectrum or kind of a, a, a series of concentric circles here about um, the kinds of, the kinds of citizens, you know, based on um, politicized identities to use jargon, um, who are closest to the state. So we talked about um, the the pro-gun militias that took over an occupied state land mm. in Oregon mm. um, earlier this year. Last year? Was it last, last year? year? Oh, man, time is... Uh, yes. <laughs> um, and, and last year... Um, kind of reclaimed government land, calling for a privatization of of government land for hunting, fishing. I'm not sure exactly what it was, but all I know is they left a bunch of trash and they destroyed it. That kind of of, um, armed insurrection is okay for certain kinds of people, namely white men, um, because they are closer to the state yeah. in a sense they exist they exist closer to the heart of the state yes. um and the the further out you mm. get mm. um the the less perceived recourse you mm. have to non nonviolent yeah. means are yeah. you know so there's a kind of um it's not even really a hierarchy. No. It's more of a, of a, an epicenter. Yes. Um, in which the the citizen, citizen rights and responsibilities are more in line with yes. and closer to those of the state, mm. um, and you know it's accompanied by mm. all of, all of our favorite old school racist tropes and you know these kinds of um, ideas about 
about identity. Mm-hmm. When it comes to the United States and Black Lives Matter, you know, we see a sort of reiteration mm-hmm. of civil rights history yeah. being folded into current events, mm-hmm. um, which we'll talk about a little bit. Mm-hmm. We mentioned in passing the the deification, if that's the right word, of nonviolence as an inherently morally superior form of, of resistance. Do you want to say a bit more about how that works in the American context? And yeah, I mean, I um, I think as a, you know, as a, a white liberal kid growing mm. up in a very liberal part of the United States, in a 99.5% white public school mm. system. Mm. Um, you learn about Martin Luther King first. Yes. And you learn, when you learn about civil rights and, and Martin Luther King, you mm. learn about nonviolence mm. and you learn about peaceful protest mm. and you learn about um, Rosa Parks mm. um, and these sort of everyday forms of protest that take on greater meaning. Yeah. Um, either through through numbers yeah. or through the seemingly mundane act. Yeah. Um, and there is always this sort of narrative of nonviolence as being the best form of protest. Yeah. Um, and it's linked to to the Constitution, the right to assembly, yeah. um, and and they're interwoven. This kind of the right to assembly and and the right to peacefully protest um, without breaking the law. There, and that doesn't then get linked to the Second Amendment. Of course, <laughs> of course, you know, in, in yes. some ways it does. Yes, right. Bundy and his yes. and his his militia crew. Yes, do use all yes. of those yes. interchangeably. Um, you know, we did talk about in the guns episode yes. who yes. who is allowed to who's allowed to have yes. guns yes. and not be shot yes. by police officers, yes. right? Yes. We, you know, we did talk about that, um, and it's very very sad that we talked about that, posted that episode, and then, and then all of this happened. all of this continues continues to happen. Um, but it's I mean it's a really interesting thing because you know Martin Luther King. Um, said many things. Yes. He wrote many things. Yes. He, he, you know, he, he lived a fascinating life as a civil rights yes. activist yes. and a community leader. And, um, the fact that nonviolence is, is yes. his thing, yes. um, is very interesting. Yeah. It's, it's a very appealing yeah. idea yeah. for, you know, middle class white liberal people who are pretty yeah. comfortable yeah. in their homes and their positions. Yeah, I mean, this this might be a little bit of a tangent, but I I sometimes think it's 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 very convenient and very easy that the single line that everybody knows about Martin Luther King is about dreaming, and it seems to me that there is a way in which the attaining of civil rights gets turned into utopianism. You know, it is always the dream. It is always the dream that is... And, you know, even when, you know, Baba talks about the perfecting of the union, and it, it, it becomes something that is that is a promise that is always deferred. Um, yes, Langston Hughes' dream deferred. Yes, yes. 
and um, you know the the as you say the many many other things that Martin Luther King said, many of which were more interesting, more radical, um, gets ignored. Yeah, I mean he's not remembered as being a philosopher. Yeah. Or a theorist, yes. But he is—he was one. Yes. yes. Um, you know, Ma- Malcolm X is thought of as being a theorist. Is he thought of at all? Yes. Really? Yes. He so Malcolm X. It's very interesting, actually, the way that Malcolm X and Martin Luther King have both been it, applied. Yeah. I think, and and yeah. have inspired and informed Black Lives mm. Matter discourse, mm. um, because they're both. They're both brought out. Yeah. Um, and especially a lot of Malcolm X's later kind of speeches and, and writings, but yeah. also, you know, his autobiography. Yeah. Um, they are a part of the discourse. Yes. As is Martin Luther King, and not just Martin Luther King's kind of nonviolence. Yes. Um, there is an engagement on the part of a lot of black intellectual activists yeah. because despite mm. um, what we're shown, mm. you know, and despite the fact that they're not ever given a platform, mm. yeah. there are many, many of black intellectuals in the of United course. States. I mean, like, I, I, when I said is, Martin Luther, is Malcolm X talked of at all, I, I meant more it, as a national figure in the way Martin Luther King becomes mm. symbolic of the entire movement. Yeah, I don't think did you, so. Did I kids don't... learn about Malcolm X at school in the same way, for example? Um, not when you're little, no. Yeah. I mean, you do sort of eventually you start to learn a little bit about the Black Panthers as the antithesis, right? Yes. As the kind of, um, which I think is where you're going, which yes. is um, I, the Black Panthers were the opposite yeah. of Martin Luther King's yes. Yes. all-inclusive you know, rainbow of harmony yes. and diversity kind of picture. When in fact, of course, it's not nearly yes. and, so. Clear. And again, as an outsider, you could you could sort of see that in the Obama Jeremiah Wright yes. controversy. You could see sort of two different versions of black resistance uh, coming through. One being this, you know, harmonious um, hope for the future stuff, and the more radical separatist, militant. Yeah, I mean, and even going back further, um, the you know, the, the debate between um, Booker T. Washington mm. and W.B. Du Bois mm. um, about how post-emancipation mm. African Americans should go about building yeah. community and, and being American, yeah. how they should yeah. go about engaging with the state yeah. and engaging with white Americans mm. and and you know, building an economic and political world for for themselves. And, um, it's, it's always been there. Um, the different, I mean, they they were both proposing different forms of, of black engagement and resistance. And, um, but it's, yeah, I mean, I I think the, Nonviolence mm. is is rendered yeah. useless mm. in terms of providing alternative visions yeah. for mm. the state mm. because it's appropriated by the state. Yes, 
you know, it's it. Black activists are only ever allowed to engage yeah. when they're engaging nonviolently. But even then, I mean, yes. he, he, you know, the, there are some amazing instances of Black Lives Matter activists going and talking to politicians, yeah. showing up at yeah. at um, events for yes. politicians, yes. and yeah. and going up and asking. Yeah. Asking questions yes. of their politicians yes. and then being told that they were being aggressive yeah. and they were, yeah. you know, um, taking over the event yeah. and they were, they weren't being polite. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's it's interesting that because um, the, the the one figure we haven't mentioned so far is Gandhi. Yeah. Uh, given given that is sort of one place where Martin Luther King gets his his you know nonviolence as a political strategy as sort of distinct from moral principle. Um, and of course, bo- both in the sense, in the way in which we remember the struggle for independence in India and the way in which we remember the struggle for civil rights. We remember both of these as apparent victories for nonviolence, when of course they are matched with, contradicted by existing in, in the same world at the same time by other more radical, more violent forms of action. You know, we've mentioned Malcolm X and Black Panthers already. There's the, the, the radical, you know, military, militant uh, response to British rule in India as well. And what is interesting, going back to what you were saying about the, the compulsion for nonviolence isn't really, doesn't really help uh, black activists today, because even when they're not being, even when they are being not violent, they're they're still being accused of being, you know, angry or aggressive or or whatever or dis- disruptive. And you have a similar thing where there isn't really a huge amount of emphasis in public discourse about Kashmir, which says that Kashmiris should be non-violent in their resistance. Because what is of importance is their resistance. You know, the the compulsion is, don't be resisting. You know, don't don't argue against the state. Whether you do do it violently or non-violently is, to be honest, beside the point. Uh, what cannot be tolerated is dissent against the state. Whether that dissent takes a violent form or non-violent form, which is why I think, generally speaking, you don't see an equivalent liberal. We support your aims but you need to be non-violent in doing so position about Kashmir generally speaking either you have the mainstream overwhelming mainstream position outside of Kashmir in India which is you know it's terrorism sponsored by Pakistan and designed to break up India or you have the left alternative position which says Kashmir is deserve a referendum, they deserve self-determination, self-rule, whatever. But you don't really have that liberal middle ground position. That that that, that space seems to have disappeared. Which is interesting given the central role of Gandhi in other forms yes. of of or other discourses of nation building in India. Yes. Um, yes. And the role it, that Gandhi plays. So it, it, I mean Gandhi the Gandhian nation-building project gets used, I, I would say, more 
as a way to defend the, the army's role because the army is working to preserve the nation that Gandhi helped create, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the non-violence, I mean, to go back to the, the question of, of the morality of non-violence versus the strategy of non-violence, mm. um, I think, you know, Gandhi's, kind of the myth of Gandhi, Gandhi's sainthood, comes from this sort of understanding of them as being intertwined, the strategy and the morality, and that because because there was a moral high ground, the effectiveness would follow. And, I mean, that's such a, it's such a fascinating position. Yes. Yes. If, you know, if you think about observing the everyday world. Yeah. but as well, um, the revisionist history yes. that goes on. Because as you say, you know, y- you and I aren't particularly, you know, we are certainly not pro-violence. No. We're very much yes. for gun control in yes. the United States. We're very much for yes. um, militaries and police departments and border patrol yes. not killing people. Yes. We're very much anti-war. Yes. You know, yes. for all intents and purposes, we take a nonviolent position. Yes. And yet we see such difficulty yes. with the appropriation yes. of the compulsion to nonviolence yes. by institutions yes. in power. Yes. Um, the sort of... <laughs> the state. There's something just very perverse about the state telling people you should take the moral high ground... Yes. While protecting people who most certainly yes, don't, yes. it's. The, I mean, it's. The, what makes all all of this more complicated is how repeatedly the state is implicated in unleashing violence that it can then no longer control. So, if it's, I mean, if we use Dallas as an example, the shooter in Dallas, as far as anyone can tell, as far as in terms of the information we've been given, was an ex-army person. He was trained by the state in how to kill. And you have, again and again, in various examples, the state which... I guess this this is what sort of complicates Weber's definition slightly, which is, in the last resort, yes, the state maintains the monopoly of over-violence, but the state feels it can control the violence that it has unleashed. But it can't. And again and again, you have this complication of the state's state-endorsed, state-supported, state-conducted violence coming up against another version of itself. Yeah. Well, yeah, and we talked about this with, our, with Orlando, the Orlando shootings, that the state could regulate weapons in such a way as to protect itself yes. as to protect its police officers mm. you know there was um a great piece in the new yorker um short piece about um how the entire situation around police officers killing mm. civilians yes. particularly black yeah. civilians and and mm. people of color in the united states is centrally or it's tied up with with gun legislation in the united states that if 
if there were fewer guns, police officers would feel less at risk. But police officers would also therefore need less equipment. Exactly. And therefore, weapons manufacturers would get less money. Exactly. Um, so, you know, there's the, the, John Oliver did this uh, amazing thing. We'll put it in the, in the links. Uh, in the aftermath of Ferguson, where he, he demonstrated the ways in which police forces are increasingly militarized uh, using military-grade weapons and technology, which in some cases have no role and no particular benefit in community policing, um, civilian policing. A classic example is camouflage. Um, again and again, you will see police wearing camouflage on the streets of cities in America. Yeah, the Ferguson yes. protests are those, those famous images. Yes. Um, and it seems to me that the if if we try to explain how this comes about, there is there is the the economic explanation in terms of neoliberalism needs you know needs the industrial military complex and therefore needs a, an outlet that will pay for all of these weapons, so the weapons manufacturers can make a suitable profit. So that is one example uh, explanation. Uh, but equally, the the need of the police to look right, to look threatening in the way that... Uh, to it, The police needs to look as if they represent the state and its violence. And therefore they need to look like the army. Because otherwise the police can't quite convincingly pull off... Um, the role that it has created for itself, which is the 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 force that administers state and violence. It's interesting because I f- I feel like this is um, there's a post nine eleven element mm. to this um, in some ways because the discourse around securitization has changed. Um, there's a sort of war on terror element here where, you know, the, the Donald Rumsfeld unknown unknown, yes. that the threat could be anyone at any time in any place. And so the spaces between the domestic and the foreign um, insecure area become elided. So it civilians and foreigners become... become risky in the same way and so and as you as you said you know the the distinction between a civilian and military becomes meaningless when you're talking about insurgents right that language of insurgency um which of course the bush administration created i mean they created a whole robust lexicon to describe securitization and to create a world in which securitization was necessary so the um the the kind of you know the securitization of of the police is just another yeah. element of that yes i mean if we are right in ascribing it to neoliberalism on the one hand and the state's desire to visibly visually 
control through violence its its civilian population. Then it is post nine eleven, yes, but in a in an alternative world where nine eleven didn't happen, there'd be other other reasons to do it. Yes, I mean the Cold yes. War, right? The the yeah. um, I mean the very famous example, of course, is the McCarthy hearings yes. and and the the kind of economic blacklisting yes. of, of various people seem to be sympathetic to communism. Yeah. Um, the kind of you know um, the treatment of mm. Europe and Eastern Europe, mm. and you know these are all kinds yeah. of um, relevant examples. I think too. I mean, you mentioned a, f- a couple of weeks ago. I think when we were talking about guns mm. and gun legislation in the United States and why the United States is dif- different from the UK, for example, um, and you said you talked about the the kind of the legacy of the settler colony, yeah. um, because we talked about Australia and we mm. talked about South Africa, yeah. and the legacy of the settler colony is one in which the civilian. Mm. And the foreigner mm. are blurred mm. because, of course, during empire, yeah. native populations, mm. enslaved African populations, mm. um, the the um, descendants of both can't quite be folded in mm. to the state yeah. in a clear cut or clean way, yeah. Yeah. and then you throw in the United States history of. Um, migration yeah. and immigration and, yeah. it, and it's very very complex and yes. guns provide a discourse of security mm. for the descendants yeah. of the settlers yes. um, and that's I mean partly why blue lives matter yeah. is powerful as a discourse yeah. because there is that fear. Except, it, I mean, you know, it's not all that different from, certainly if you if you go on social media, the constant circulation of photographs of Indian soldiers and, you know, various patriotic slogans about, you know, this is, you know, these people are risking their lives to save Mother India. If you like this, if you're, if you're a patriotic Indian, then share it. Um, comes up again. And, you know, my, the proportion of my friends who would identify as patriotic Indians is probably not that high, but I still keep getting bombarded with these these messages about the need of about needing to support the troops. You know, you have help for heroes in Britain, one of the one of the biggest, most high profile charities. Um, you have the USO in the United yes, States, where. The the job of looking after its soldiers, which strictly speaking should be the job of the state, can very easily be transferred into the the third sector, the charity sector, where if you don't, if you aren't seen to support these charities, you are not patriotic, you are you are anti-national, to use the the very current phrase in India at the moment, um, and it comes down to the state using both violent means and non-violent means through discourse in order to uh, reduce and eventually get rid of spaces from which you can criticise the state. Where what is being policed, I think, is dissent. And whether you are 
whether your descent takes takes violent or non-violent forms, eventually it will be silenced because that is the one thing the state can't tolerate. It's interesting. Um, I think you're absolutely right, and it's interesting. I'm just as you're speaking, I'm thinking of the the discourse, the individualized discourse that takes um, police brutality kind of out of its systemic institutional yes. context. Yes. Um, and there's this, you know, the the phrasing of you know people need to respect the police, and you know you put yourself at risk if you don't if you aren't respectful of the police, um, and you know these this you know we call it victim blaming language, and um, I would say that that is what it is, but at the same time it's also a sort of um, as you say it it it's the American version of anti nationalist. Yes. Um, you know, if you're not respectful of the police, then you you aren't fulfilling your duties as an American, yes. and you're not fulfilling your responsibilities yes. as a citizen. Yes. Um, and of course, Black Lives Matter activists, you know, and, yeah. and many others would say that that doesn't justify yeah. your execution at yes. the hands of the individual that you're encountering. Um, but there is a kind of, as you say, it's it's about dissent. Yeah. Um, and I think for Black Lives Matter and others, you know, anyone who, who discusses race critically in this way, the very the very essence of yourself or personhood, if you are a person of color, is dissent. Is dissent. Absolutely. By simply being black, yes. you are dissenting. Yes. Um, which is a... I mean, it makes perfect sense. Yes. It's a horrific thing to exactly. say. And it's yes. a horrific thought, but that's exactly what's yes. happening. Yes. Which is why all the, you know, you get, again, on social media, post after post about, um, you know, you should try not to attract attention, you know, if you if you are stopped to make sure you're, I, I was reading somewhere that a list of things that you should do if you're driving, driving while black, <laughs> and you are asked to show your documents, always have your documents in an easily accessible place in the car, so that, you know, you not don't have to reach for your pocket to take it out. Um and of course, that misses the point, right? Because it's not the it's the the act of a black man, for example, reaching for his pocket isn't that much more threatening than a black man being black. It's his blackness that is threatening, independent of whatever it is he might be doing. Yes, exactly. And it's it's that that is at stake here, that yes. question of is it legal to be black, yes. right? Do you, yes. Are you afforded the rights yes. and responsibilities of a citizen yes. if you are black? And that's really the the heart of, I think, Black yes. Lives Matter. Yes. Um, which, you know... it's the It reminds me a little bit of the famous the Irish Evans photo that has been doing the rounds. Of, yes. A photo of a woman standing... Uh, with her arms crossed in front of three, four more maybe, huge policemen in, in right you know, gear. gear. And the way that photo is circulated, or has been to my mind, is to highlight the power of nonviolence. In the it sort of comparisons have been made to the tank man photograph in Tiananmen Square and so on. Um I don't think I mean if if that woman was carrying a gun, I don't think it would make the the, the photo that much different for me 
for me, what what the the what this photo speaks to is the radical difference in in power between the state and the person who the state considers threatening or external or foreign. Um, you know, the state the state considers black people foreign enemies, threatening. Um, so that 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 is what speaks to me about the photo. It reminds me a little bit of. Uh, there is a famous photograph um, uh, taken in Palestine with a Palestinian kid throwing a rock at an Israeli tank. That's not a photo of non-violence. He's throwing a rock. But the the difference is not violence versus non-violence. The difference is the overwhelming force of the state versus individual, small-scale, minor acts of resistance, whether they are violent or non-violent. Yeah. Is there any more we want to say? I think we're probably done. Um, thanks for listening. Let us know if we've missed anything out, if you'd want to want us to say anything more, if you disagree with us. Send more resources. Send more resources. Tweet at us. Um, like us on iTunes or SoundCloud. And keep listening for the next episode. Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode. I have been Hannah Fitzpatrick. And I have been Anindya Richardry. You can contact me on Twitter at Dr. H. Fitz. And me at Dr. Anindya R. Our music was provided by the Agrarians, and this has been State of the Theory. Thank you. Well,